Well, 1 Timothy 4.16 states, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. It is my assessment that the doctrine, that doctrine or theology in general has been sorely neglected in American evangelicalism. From the, the most prevalent form of Christianity today that is found is one that has really removed every possible theological sharp edge. Any doctrine that cuts or could possibly offend has been dulled and diluted as to offend no one. And it seems that the goal of church has become to draw a large crowd, create a following, and really increase in notoriety. And in many churches today, the gospel and Christian theology really have been entirely defanged and subverted by a pragmatic approach to Christianity. To the point that the Christianity of many churches is really hardly recognizable as historic biblical Christianity. So in general, theology has been lost in the church. And yet, as you know, God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. Thankfully, in our country, there are many churches who have not really bowed the knee to Baal, to use the language from the Old Testament. Many churches love to study doctrine and love to study theology, and we are thankful for them. They are committed to the Scriptures. But even among doctrinally sound churches, and even among churches with sound theology, we can still have blind spots. There can be areas of theology for one reason or another, that we overlook, that are neglected. And in the wake, really, of this pragmatic movement that's come across America in the last, really, 40 or so years, what we might call the megachurch movement, I believe the area of theology that's maybe been most willfully neglected is the area of ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church, the study of what the Scripture has to say about the local church. As American evangelicals, I believe we're prone to overlook and fail to study the doctrine of the church frequently. And at the end of the day, I believe it's just too convenient, too really too convenient to pragmatically organize the church rather than to ascribe to what we find in the New Testament. Pragmatics win at the end of the day. And therefore, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, continues to be a neglected area of study. In general, it seems that many Christians do not know what the church is, what the local church is. It's common to hear people say things like, I do church outside. My church is the great outdoors. I'm sure you've heard people say things like that. And this was brought to our attention maybe in the pandemic more than any other period. During the pandemic, things we, we were told things like, do church at home. Many people are really still doing church at home. And it's as if somehow it's possible to do church at home by ourselves. Back in April of 2020, I was, I was a bit of a purist in our household about our terminology. In our house, when the church building was closed there in Bozeman, and we were live streaming services, I was careful to not call it church. Out of love for the Lord's Day gathering of the true church, I could not bring myself to acknowledge the substitute of live streaming as church. Out of love for, the, for this Lord's Day gathering, I would not say church for it. But I must say, this has not always been the case for me. For years, I really had no clue what the church was. Like many to people today, for years in my life, I really had, haven't given any thought to what a church was. You see, I really came to Christ in a parachurch movement in Bozeman. And I, I loved Christ. And I loved sharing Christ. But after graduating, I moved to Turkey to, to, of all things, to become a church planter. 
a church planner. I joined a church planning team, although I really didn't have much of a clue about what the church was. And after a few months of living in Turkey, several of us on the church planning team came to the stark realization that we really didn't have a clue about what the church was. And as a group, we really didn't know what we should do on Sundays. We were asking, should one of us preach? Should we take the Lord's Supper together? How should we do that? And then when a young Turkish student came to Christ, we were going, should we baptize him? Who's supposed to do that? And really, we didn't have a plan. And needless to say, overall, our effort to plant a church there in Turkey proved to be quite ineffective. And after three years of living there, I returned to Montana with a desire to understand the church and really be equipped in this regard. And over the past several years, I've grown in my desire to study the church, study what Scripture says and has revealed about what the church is supposed to be, to understand these things, and then to practice them, and then really to teach the biblical doctrine of ecclesiology. And this might help you understand why we as a church have really been studying the things we have been studying. Really, it's my desire to be a part of a church and help lead a church family that is committed to living out the New Testament together, living out the New Testament prescriptions for what a local church is. Therefore, for months now in Sunday school, we've been studying the doctrine of the church. We began by studying the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and how when people believe the gospel, it radically changes them. They become a new creation in Christ. And then these people who have come to Christ and are born again then gather themselves together in local churches. And we discussed also things like the Lord's Supper, how we are to manage the Lord's Supper. What does that mean in the context of local church? We also looked at things like baptism. What does baptism mark a believer? How does it relate to the church as a whole? What does it tell us? And we also discussed church discipline. This is how the church remains pure how we are to care and love for one another. And really, despite the fact that the practice of church discipline has become really a retired ancient relic, uh, a relic of church history in most churches, we studied how Christ explicitly commands us to practice church discipline in Matthew 18. We've been studying all these things in Sunday school, but also from the pulpit these last few weeks, I've been hitting some key areas that I'd like us to know and be aware of. Really, you might say filling in some gaps For example, we discussed a few weeks ago why we sing in the church, studying Colossians 3.16. And we've also studied the fervent love that the church should maintain together from 1 Peter 4. And then lastly, we looked again at 1 Peter 4 and discussed the purpose of spiritual gifts in the church. Eventually, my plan is to make our way towards the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's where we'll be this fall, Lord willing. But before we get there, there are a couple more ecclesiological items that I just wanted us to cover and look at together. And this morning, the topic that I'd like us to address is really the leadership of the church, the church's leadership. How the church is led is really a critical component to this thing called ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And this morning, I'd like us to focus on the role of of the elder, the biblical role of an elder. And to do so this week, we'll be again in First Peter and primarily in First Peter 5. So if you would, you want to make your way there with me past the book of Hebrews, then James, then First Peter, First Peter 5. This morning, I'd like you to see what God has said in his word about the office of elder. So just to gain a little context, let's back up in chapter 4 to verse 12 And we'll read through verse 4 of chapter 5. So beginning in 
4.12. Follow along with me. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you... Are, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in, in this name. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will, become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sort of gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over all those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see the clear theme of the later half of chapter 4 is really the suffering of the Christian. The suffering Christian. Peter really told them to not be surprised at this fiery ordeal that had come upon them. They had already been suffering, and therefore he informed these really battle-weary Christians that suffering for Christ's sake was actually, was actually the way that Christ had prescribed, and it was, it was what we should expect. And it was really ultimately a blessing because in persecution, this text says that the Spirit of God rests upon you in a unique way. And he warned them that the judgment of God would continue to come against them and everyone else. But through hardship, they were to entrust their souls to a faithful creator and doing good. And chapter 5 then begins with this word, therefore. Therefore, in view of God's judgment and in view of the waves of suffering that will continue to come against the church, the church would be under increasing pressure. And in this increasing tension and pressure on the church community, Peter desired that the church function properly. He has a special word here for the church's leadership in verses 1 through 4. In verse 5, he'll address younger members of the church, but first it is the elders of the church that he addresses. In verses 1 through 3, Peter first identifies what what we find first is really his addressees, who he's addressing. Then he gives us his credentials, really a three-part credentials. And then finally, he gives us the content of an appeal he's making, an appeal. So really, Peter's addressees, then Peter's credentials, then the content of Peter's appeal. Those are really the three parts of this message this morning. First, Peter notes his intended audience, his addressees. And just look there at 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Peter writes, to the elders among you. Peter's speaking to the elders. 
Recall here, Peter is writing to several churches that are living there in Asia Minor. Due to persecution, they were forced to flee Israel and make their ways north into the Roman provinces above. And Peter writes, to the elders among you. This word elder really comes from the Old Testament. You'll find it in many places in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, among the people of Israel, the elders were generally the people, the leading members of the community, especially in times when there was no king. They were the elders who led. So this term elder really conveys wisdom. It conveys age. But in the New Testament, in the church, the term elder takes on a new specific meaning. It's definitely more than simply referring to wisdom and age. In 1 Peter 5, Paul focuses on the elders among you. That is, in this part of his letter, he narrows in on the elders among each of these local churches. He's specifically addressing the group of elders that existed in each one of these congregations. And notice here that Peter assumes that there were elders plural, more than one elder in each church. And really, this is the clear biblical pattern that we find again in Scripture. We should say every church should be led by multiple elders. And I just would like to demonstrate this to you. So if you would, I invite you to turn back to the book of Acts with me. Turn back to the book of Acts after the four Gospels. Acts, and we'll be in Acts 14, Acts 14, verse, we'll begin reading in verse 19, Acts 14, verse 19. There in verse 19, it says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This is here Paul's missionary journey and his type of ministry and the work he did. Verse 20, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here we see elders in every church. Look also, turn a couple pages to the right to chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, this is a well-known chapter. Paul addressing the elders of the church of Ephesus. Here Paul is again on, a missionary, on his missionary travels. Look with me at verse 17. Here it says, From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So here Peter calls these elders to come to him. They're really coming down to Miletus from Ephesus so that he can speak with this group of elders. Elders, plural. So here we have two examples in the book of Acts where we see elders, plural. And we can find something similar in 1 Thessalonians. If you would, I invite you to turn over there with me. 1 Thessalonians. If you make your way through the New Testament, Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and next comes 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and look at verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, having charge over you in the Lord and giving you instruction. Here, notice that we do not have the word elders, but what we do have is a plural group that is giving leadership. They're responsible for giving charge over the congregation and also instructing the congregation. 
And finally, turn with me to Titus. This is just a couple books to the right, a few pages to the right, to the book of Titus, past First and Second Timothy. Titus chapter 1. Here, in, the book, in this book, Paul is instructing his young son in the faith, Titus, regarding how he's to continue the work of establishing the gospel and building up the churches in Crete. Really, Paul had preached the gospel and made many disciples on this island, and now he was leaving behind Titus. And look with me at verse 5 of of chapter 1. Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Here again, appoint elders in every city. Just very much like what we find in Acts 14.23. And what we see here is that Paul says, in every city. And the assumption is here, like most of the New Testament, that there is only one church in each city. It was the church of Ephesus, or the church of Philippi, or the church that existed in Corinth. So the normal biblical pattern that we see is that every church be led by a group of elders, plural. Although sadly, as you know, there are many churches that do not follow this model today. It would seem that most common today is there for there to be a single pastor and then with really a board of elders or deacons below them in sort of a CEO type model. But really this does not accord with Scripture because as we'll see in a moment, elders are pastors. Elders are pastors. They're synonymous. But for now, since we're in the book of Titus, it would be good for us to consider briefly the qualifications for this office of elder. Twice in the New Testament we find lists of, lists of qualifications for elders. Once in 1 Timothy 3, which we read earlier this morning, and then here in Titus 1. And looking at Titus chapter 1, in verse 5, Paul said he was going to bring order. That's what, he wanted, that's what he wanted Titus to do, bring order to these churches by establishing a group of elders. And then he gave them this list of qualifications. Verse 6, he says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Really, to point out the obvious here, this clearly means that elders are men. And since elders are synonymous with pastors, it's really unbiblical to have female pastors, but I know you know this. Continuing, he says, having, el- having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Some versions read this, children who are faithful. Verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devote, Devout, self-controlled. And finally, in verse 9, he adds something that the elders must do. Look what he says there in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So the elder must both exhort in sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine, but also be able to refute those who would bring in any error. And it's for this reason in the list in 1 Timothy 3, Paul said that the elder must be able to teach. That's a qualification. The elder must be able to teach. An elder teaches the truth, and he also refutes the error through teaching. And so to sum up this list, good elder candidates are godly men who are committed to the truth of the Scriptures. And really we could say there's no area of their life that is blatantly incongruous, incongruous with the Word of God. In other words, they are above reproach. Above reproach. Really, this term above reproach is really a summary characteristic that really describes them all. 
above reproach. It means that they're not perfect. They are certainly still sinners. They still will sin. But their, in char- their character and, and their integrity is, is, is such a high degree that really accusations against them really don't stick. They're such a godly group that accusations really do not stick easily against them. That's what an elder should be. And just as a side note here, I'm personally of the opinion that every male in the church should strive to be elder qualified. Every male in the church should strive to be elder qualified. Certainly, some of you are not gifted to teach, and that means you probably will not be in the office. But every man should strive to have these character qualities in their life. After all, in 1 Timothy 3, which we read this morning, Paul wrote, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So young men, aspire to the office of elder. Older men, so should you. We should be all pursuing this office, pursuing these qualifications in our life. If you desire the work of eldering, Paul says it's it's a good thing. So may God raise up men in our church who would serve as elders of our church and other churches. But before returning to 1 Peter 5, there's one more thing I'd like us to see about the nature of the office of elder. If you're still in Titus, look again at verse 7. Look at verse 7 here. It says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Here we find this word overseer. If you're using the King James Bible or a New King James Version, you're likely reading the term bishop. Bishop. Really, uh, this word bishop and the word overseer are synonymous. It's the same It's the same root word. It's the same word. But really, the word means to watch over or give oversight. So historically, that word has been translated either either as overseer or as bishop. But it's the same thing. And in in Titus 1.5, Paul here is referring to the group of elders. He's giving qualifications for them. He does so. He continues in verse 6. But in verse 7, we see this term overseer. And we must ask ourselves, is is Paul referring to two offices? Is there the office of elder in verses 5 and 6? And then this different group called overseers in verses 7 and following. Is that the case? I don't believe that is so. This is just one office that he's describing. But he describes it in different ways. He calls it an elder and he calls it an overseer. I think the context of this passage makes that clear. He's only referring to one office, but he can refer to them as an overseer, a bishop, or an elder. He can call them either way. And this really is, is a repeated truth found in other passages. I would invite, invite you to turn back with me to Acts chapter 20 to see this same thing. Again, backing up to the book of Acts, see Paul here speaking to these elders in Ephesus who he's now called to himself. And look, again, we saw verse 17. He called these elders down to him. He's going to impart a final word of instruction to them. These are men who labored alongside him in ministry. But look at, these, look at his words to the Ephesian elders beginning in verse 25. He says, And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God, will no longer see my face. It's the last time Paul is going to see his close brothers in the faith here. Verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul shared with them everything. The whole purpose of God. Verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the overseer has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. 
shepherd the flock of God. Here, notice that Paul reminds these elders in Ephesus that the Holy Spirit has made them what? He's made them overseers or he's made them bishops. So again, these these Ephesian elders are both elders and bishops, elders and overseers. It's the same thing, synonymous terms. Elders are bishops. Elders are overseers. And notice what Paul encourages the elders to do here. He encourages them to shepherd the church of God. They were to shepherd. They were to act as shepherds. Another way we could say this is that they were to pastor the church. The word pastor is really derived from the Latin term shepherd. That's where the word pastor comes from. It comes from the word shepherd. To pastor the church means to shepherd the church. So these Ephesian elders were referred to as bishops or overseers and were called to do the work of pastoring. They were to pastor. Therefore, in the New Testament, the terms elder, bishop, overseer, and pastor are all synonymous terms. There's only one office here. Pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, all the same office. And in our Christian culture... Uh, we sometimes reserve the term pastor for those who are vocationally supported by the church. I mean, you know this, uh, but I think we should be quick to acknowledge that that's not really the biblical pattern. It's not really the biblical pattern. All of the elders are, are pastors in a sense. And personally, I think it's probably best if our practice align as closely as possible with what we find in the New Testament as we can. On a practical note, at least once I've been asked by members of our church, how would you like us to refer to you? Should we call you Joe or Pastor Joe? What would you prefer? And after as considering this, this question, looking at really what Jesus has to say about honorific titles in Matthew 23, I'm really comfortable with you calling me either Joe or Pastor Joe. But I would add that if you prefer to call me Pastor Joe, which I think I can understand, it's a good thing, a good way to show honor. I appreciate that. But if you do call me Pastor Joe, I'd ask that you also call Don, Scott, and Kurt with the title Pastor as well. Um, At the moment, there are four of us pastoring this church, four elders, and all four of us wield the same authority. And uh, together as elders, we lead this church. And really, as the only paid staff member, I recognize that in some ways, my authority is unique. I, I understand that. But the biblical pattern is a plurality of elders leading the church. A pastor is an elder and is an overseer. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter is addressing the elders among each of these individual churches. So I would, after that, let's return to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. And now Peter has has noted his addressees. Now Peter is giving some unique credentials in order to make his appeal. Some of his unique credentials. Therefore, he writes, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory to be revealed. Here in this, in this section, he's really identifying three things about himself. He's a fellow elder. He's a witness of Christ's suffering. And then he's a partaker of the glory which is soon to be revealed. And to consider this first one, it's interesting that here Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. In chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Peter, Peter referred to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here he seems to be intentionally placing himself on a similar level with the elders. He's their fellow elder here. He's not speaking down to them as in a superior would to inferiors. Although as an apostle, definitely Peter had a, a unique authority in these churches. 
in a sense, the apostles sort of functioned as elders for all the churches. They, were, they had authority and unique authority over all the church, the whole church. They had universal authority in all the churches as an apostle. But here, Peter is, is not really commanding as a superior. He's appealing to them, which is the verb that's used. I exhort you. I exhort you. Or I appeal to you. Exhort may carry too strong of a connotation. He's, what he's really doing is just simply coming alongside of them as a fellow elder. Next, Peter reminds them that he's a witness of the suffering of Christ. Although Peter, with the other disciples, fled when Jesus was arrested, there were first-hand witnesses of the... They were, as those, in those early days, first-hand witnesses of Christ's suffering, of the opposition that he faced continually from the Jewish authorities. And although Peter is not pictured there in the immediate scene of the crucifixion, Peter was likely not far away at all, likely from, an, uh, from a distance he was observing everything, and therefore he is an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. He really had a, a front row seat to all of Christ's suffering, and the very same suffering that Jesus would really call all of us to go through. Really here, Jesus and Peter will invite everyone to suffer in the way that Christ suffered. And as you already know, this is a theme in this epistle. Christ suffered and therefore we're called to follow after him in suffering. And I just want to show you a few places where we see this in first Peter back up to chapter two, verse 21. See what Peter writes there two twenty-one. He says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, follow in the steps of Christ's suffering. Look at chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Paul says, just Christ suffered in this way, therefore you're going to suffer. And it's actually going to have this sanctifying effect on your life when you do suffer for Christ. And finally, look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Peter writes here, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Rejoice in the suffering. You see, Peter fully expected that each Christian would share in the sufferings of Christ. And therefore, he called us to rejoice when we suffer for Christ, looking ahead to his glorious appearing, when he would be revealed in glory, which is really the third credential that Peter lists in 1 Peter 5.1. He's also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. You see, although the Christian's life would include suffering, we're always constantly looking through suffering ahead to the glory that is coming, the glory of Christ's return. Christ would return at any moment. So although we suffer, we keep our eyes fixed upon Christ's return. So here, Peter, as a fellow elder, as a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also as one who anxiously awaited the glorious return of Christ, Peter here appeals to them. He comes alongside of them. And, and really, this brings us to Peter's command. The command, as we've already seen, comes in this form of an appeal. He's appealing, but nonetheless, this is an urgent command. And, I, and as I've considered this verse this past week, I believe Peter's command here really epitomizes the work of the elder. This is the primary task of the pastor, elder, and overseer. In a way, all the other responsibilities in Scripture that the elder has are subservient to this one. So appealing to these local church elders and all local church elders, Peter writes, 
shepherd the flock of God among you. The command is to shepherd or be shepherds. And here it's to shepherd a particular people. Look at there. It says it is the shepherd, the flock of God. But notice that it's not the entire flock of God. It's really a portion of the flock of God, that which is among you. Again, Peter is addressing elders in each of these churches, and they're commanded to shepherd the flock of God, which exists around them or among them. And these little two little words are incredibly important to me as an elder pastor among you. These two words really define the boundaries of my responsibility as a pastor and elder. If these words were not in this verse, my responsibility was to shepherd would extend to the entire flock of God, which would be really the entire global church, the universal church. I mean, if that were the case, my jurisdiction would really be unlimited. It would really include all of us, every single Christian. The sheep around us as elders, that's our call. The sheep around us, our local church. That means I and the other elders of this church really have no responsibility, no spiritual authority in the lives of the members of, say, Blue Creek Baptist Church just down the road. I have no spiritual authority in the lives of the members of Faith Chapel or or really any other church. But we as pastor elders are called to shepherd this church, this flock of God, the flock of God among us. Our obligation is to shepherd this church family. And again, this is the primary responsibility given to pastors and elders. We are to shepherd. And just think about this for a moment. What does it mean to shepherd? What does it mean to shepherd? We think about shepherds. In general, shepherding is a sort of a lost profession of today. We don't think of it much. We don't have probably any real world examples of men who are shepherds that we actually know. Maybe some of you do. But what does it mean to shepherd? To live with sheep, to take care of sheep to watch out for sheep, to follow sheep, to lead sheep. Well, in the Scriptures, there is a lot to say about this role of shepherding. And really, the background behind this term is really quite rich. You see, this term here, to shepherd, or, or, this, or the verb, to shepherd, uh, really is really quite a bit of Old Testament background and New Testament background. And I'd like us to think about some of that this morning. I'd like to give a little survey of what the Bible talks about when it refers to, to, to this role of shepherding. And so if you would, I'd invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles, and we'll do some more page turning. And I know we've already done a lot of page turning this morning, so thank you for hanging with me. But let's go into the Old Testament if you'd like. Otherwise, just listen along. But let's turn back to the fourth book of our Bibles, to the book of Numbers. Clear back to the Torah, the books that Moses wrote. Numbers chapter 27. You see, since the time of the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel, God has been appointing leaders to shepherd his people. And he's referred to them as shepherds. He was referred to them as shepherds. Look at chapter 27 of Numbers, beginning in verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So here, after Moses, Joshua was to function as the shepherd of the people of Israel. 
And later on, David would fulfill this same role. In 2 Samuel 5.2, the Lord commissioned David there to shepherd my people Israel. That's what it says, shepherd my people Israel, and to be a ruler over them. And as a king, David was a, was a shepherd that cared for the flock of God. And as you know, David was a righteous king, but it did not take long for the elders, for the leaders of Israel to begin to neglect their responsibility to shepherd or care or protect and guide the people of Israel. For example, the prophet Jeremiah ridiculed the shepherds of Israel. If you would, I'd invite you to see these passages with me. Open to about the middle of your Bible to Jeremiah and look at chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. There's a few passages here I want us to see in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 10 and look at verse 20. Here, Jeremiah is prophesying prophesying about the condition of Israel. He says, my tent is destroyed, verse 20, and all my ropes are broken. My sons have gone from me and are no more. There is no one to stretch out my tent again or set up my curtains, for the shepherds have become stupid. They have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. The shepherds really have become dumb. Turn uh, to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 for a similar a similar word from the prophet. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my sheep. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. And then I myself will gather the rem- remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. Here, here Jeremiah begins to prophesy of a time in Israel's future when once again they would be regathered. This is new covenant language, a time when Israel would repent and come back to the Lord. A future prophecy about them. But look at verse 4. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. They will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will there be any missing, declares the Lord. This is a time in future when God will employ human leaders to shepherd the people of Israel. Again, this is when the new covenant has been entirely fulfilled among the people of Israel. Back up to chapter 3 of Jeremiah to see another text about the shepherds of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 3.15, great verse, Jeremiah 3.15, this is what God prophesies, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding, shepherds after my own heart, the shepherds of Israel will one day be shepherds after God's own heart, in a way they weren't we're not like before. Before they were not shepherds after God's own heart in majority. And, and by the way here, if you'd like something to pray for the elders and pastors of us church, I would invite you pray this for us. Pray that we would be shepherds after God's own heart who feed you on knowledge and understanding from his word. That we would be shepherds after God's own heart. I would invite you to turn to another Old Testament prophet, the book of Ezekiel. Turn to the right. Just a couple books. Ezekiel. We see here in Ezekiel chapter 34 some severe words, again, rebuking the prophets of Israel. 
here Yahweh comes against really the rebellious shepherds of Israel. And notice how he indicts them in this passage. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against Israel, against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep and without feeding the flock. These shepherds were killing the sheep in essence, eating the, their sheep. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, in verse 4. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Likely a reference to their idolatrous worship. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search for them or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. By noting here the failure of these elders, these shepherds of Israel, we learn a little bit about what it means to be a shepherd. Notice here that they failed to feed the sheep. Instead, they really fleeced the flock. They, They became wealthy and fat by consuming from the sheep. And they did not care for the sickly The diseased were left untreated. The broken were not bound up. The lost sheep were not even sought after. They were not searched for. And they were left for the wild beasts to devour. And as a result of their negligence, in verse 10, Yahweh says to them, He is against those shepherds. And in verse 11, Ezekiel prophesies of a day when God will restore the flock of Israel. As is common in Ezekiel, The future restoration of the people of Israel is pictured here. This has not yet occurred. But one day, when Israel turns to Messiah Jesus, they will be restored as the unique elect people of of God on the face of the earth. But see God here functioning as shepherd, beginning in verse 11. Look there. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, So I will care for my sheep. I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I'll bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountainous heights of Israel. And they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong among the sheep I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. This is here. God functioning as shepherd. God being the great shepherd of the sheep. 
And although, as we've already seen, God employs human shepherds to serve under Him, He is the ultimate shepherd. God is the shepherd of all of His people. God is the shepherd of His church. And this touches on really an important biblical thread that we should consider this morning when we're thinking about shepherding. God is the true ultimate shepherd of His people. And I believe this is evident as far back as the wilderness wanderings of Israel, but it's explicit in the book of Psalms. And I think you know this. I mean, for example, we know David's words in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He takes care of me. In Psalm 28, David prays, be their shepherd. Be the shepherd of Israel, David prays. Carry them forever, he says. In Psalm 95, the psalmist exclaims, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. So yes, the Lord is our shepherd, but as God has done for generations, He'll continue to employ human shepherds, but He is the ultimate shepherd. He is the good shepherd. So ultimately, we must say that human shepherds will fail us but God will never fail us. He is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And as as if you think about Christ for a moment, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ is also presented as a shepherd in Scripture. If you're still in Ezekiel, turn with me to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, you'll see another passage about the future restoration of Israel. Ezekiel 37, verse 21. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Again, this is a future prophecy about God's restoration of his people Israel. Verse 22, And I'll make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be their king for all of them. And they'll no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all of their dwelling places in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and and they will be my people and I will be their God. Here God restoring the people of Israel. No longer two separated kingdoms, one kingdom together under one king. And look what he says in verse 24. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. One shepherd ruling over them, he calls them David. We know this to be the greatest son of David, or the greatest descendant of David. One day, Messiah Jesus here, ruling over the people of Israel, shepherding them, which really brings us to the New Testament, doesn't it? To John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I invite you to turn your way, making our way back to 1 Peter 5. John chapter 10. Well-known passage, a great I am statement. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says what? I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and does not, and is not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees them, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, I also have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock 
with one shepherd. See here, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd and he shepherds in an entirely different way than the failed shepherds of Israel ever did. He lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died in the place of his sheep, which is really an ironic twist. The good shepherd became the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The shepherd dies for his sheep. He is shepherd and he's also the sacrificial lamb who dies for the sheep. And it's for this reason that the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 refers to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep who God raised from the dead. Peter refers to him as the chief shepherd. This, of course, implies that every other shepherd, every pastor, is merely an under-shepherd to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great, he is the great shepherd. In Ephesians 4.11, the apostle Paul wrote, Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to the church. So Christ gave pastors, or more accurately, you could say there, he gave shepherds to the church. But here Christ, as God, is the chief shepherd. He gives shepherds to the church, but he is the chief, the chief shepherd. And really, as we're in the Gospel of John, we should look at one other passage. Turn to the end of the Gospel of John. John 21, well-known passage on this topic, we cannot miss Jesus' words to Peter in John chapter 21. You see, Peter had denied Jesus three times, and now Jesus here in this account is restoring Peter. But look with me at John 21 verse 15. So when they had finished breaking, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you, you know all these things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my lambs. I don't think we can underestimate how these words impacted Peter. These command from Christ to shepherd the lambs that God had given to him. Shepherd them. And that's why when we return to 1 Peter 5, we find these words. These words were close to Peter's heart. 1 Peter 5 again. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. So with God as our example and with Christ as our example and with the failures of Old Testament Israel's shepherds in view, this is our responsibility as pastors and elders. We are to shepherd the flock of God among us. We're to shepherd the flock of God. In essence, this is really the primary responsibility of my job description. To shepherd is really an all-inclusive ter- all term that really encompasses all aspects of pastoral ministry. We'll expand more on this next week, but for now, let me just say a few things about shepherding. Shepherding involves feeding. I believe that's the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Elders, pastors teach the Word of God, sanctifying the people by the Word of God. Shepherding also involves leading. It's organizing church, giving charge over the church, leading the church and organizing it in such a way that leads to spiritual nourishment and equipping others to lead in the church. Shepherding involves protecting 
uh, refuting false doctrine that threatens the life of the church. Shepherding also involves warning and correcting. At times, really, sheep need to be pulled back and warned about dangers ahead, need to be admonished. Shepherding also involves caring for the hurting, counseling those in need, striving to restore broken marriages in the congregation, giving counsel to those who are struggling with sins. So as elders and pastors, as shepherds, this is our collective responsibility, and and we will really give an account for our faithfulness in this great stewardship. And just to end with one final passage, back up to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. When I think about shepherding, this verse, Hebrews 13, 17, is the one that complete, always comes to my mind and it really, in a way, haunts me. Hebrews 13, 17. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Notice here he's addressing really church members. He's speaking to the sheep, we might say. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Really, shepherding involves keeping watch over souls. As elders of this local church, this particular flock of this particular flock of God, we will be judged for our shepherding of your souls. What a scary thing. This is why this passage haunts me. I will give an account for how well I shepherded you and how I cared for you spiritually, myself and along with all the other three elders for all of our leadership, for all of our teaching, for all of our refuting of error. We will give an account. And I think I would be amiss if I did, did not acknowledge how much this responsibility to shepherd shapes the way we do church. I mean, this, the responsibility to care for souls really impacts the way we preach. We want people to have the Word of God so they can be growing by the Word of God. This is why we believe in, a church, in church membership. Which we always think it's crucial. The, the process of church membership helps us define who the church is. Who is the flock of God among us? Practicing meaningful biblical church membership significantly helps us as shepherds. The responsibility to care for souls is why we desire to have elder interviews with each new member. We want to hear your testimony. We believe it's our responsibility to know that you're walking with Christ to the best of our human ability. This is why we believe we should follow up with someone when we don't see them for a few weeks. We need to know where, where they are. How can it be possible to care for someone's soul if we don't know where they are physically? Really, this affects the type of fellowship opportunities we engage in. This also means that we will encourage you to help us in this great work, that you can be, as a member of this church, can be little, little shepherds to one another, caring for one another, admonishing one another, speaking the truth to one another. So we need your help in this great work. And this also means by God's grace, if he chooses to bless our ministry and we grow numerically, when the membership of our church reaches to a point that we can no longer fulfill this great obligation to shepherd the people or shepherd the flock of God among us, we have no choice but to plant another church, to start another church with a new team of elders to flock, to pastor, to shepherd that, that church, that new church, because we must take this obligation seriously. We are commanded to shepherd our church and we will strive by God's grace and through your prayers to really be faithful to this great task. After all, we are to shepherd this church. This is what Acts 20.28 refers to the, the church which he purchased with his own blood. If each sheep, each lamb is so precious to our Lord Jesus Christ, we as under shepherds must value each one of you as well. We must care for you and shepherd your soul. 
So let us pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, we, uh, I personally am just humbled by this task. I think of my failures as a shepherd. Um, I think of the great shepherd, uh, how much I need him, how much we need him as elders. We need you to lead us and guide us because ultimately we know you shepherd this church. You are the great shepherd and we are your under shepherds. And so help us, Lord, to be faithful uh, to this great task. Oh, Lord, I pray for our, our members of our church. I pray, I pray for them as, they've, uh, as they come in and they serve here. I pray that they would be eager to care for one another and they would uh, live by the New Testament commands to admonish one another, to, to exhort one another, to speak the truth to one another, to, so that we could all be working to present one another as complete in Christ. Help us to love one another to this extent. And I pray for any among us who, who do not know Christ. Uh, I just pray maybe as they just think about how the church is organized and think about God as the great shepherd and think about the local church as the place where souls are shepherded and cared for. I pray that you would just provoke or bring to their attention their great need for salvation, their great need to be born again and that you would save them. I pray that they would come to Jesus Christ and bow their knee before him and follow him with their entire life? And would they, would they join the church? Would they plant themselves here to be shepherded and built up in the truth? God, help us as a congregation to share the gospel regularly. Would we be winning people to Christ and then shepherding them faithfully in this church? We pray that you would guide us as a church. Help us to live this out faithfully. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll invite Pastor Scott to come lead us in a final song.